Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel and I am the editor of the TLS. She has hair like a poodle and a dog called Alf. It's the TLS's canine correspondent. It's interesting how how much you hesitated before you said that line. Hair like a as poodle. As you knew I was... that I shouldn't, that you shouldn't. Uh, no, I shouldn't. How would you feel if I described your hair as looking like a a newly shorn schnauzer. I wouldn't mind, actually. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Lucy Dallas is coming in. He's going to be in, uh, on the podcast today. Lucy, do you Hello. feel... Is it offensive to say Thea has hair like a poodle? I just... I thought... I, I elaborately <laughs> qu- elaborately quaffed was kind of the... It's the certainly not elaborately quaffed. <laughs> oh. Well, I just think it's a bit it's a bit personal stick. Right. Well apparently I have I a hair like a... more sh- of a spaniel anyway. <laughs> I wouldn't describe your hair in canine terms at all. Okay. Thank how, you, Lucy. How is Alf? He's well. We took him to the sea for the first time. He was absolutely petrified of the waves. Was he? Tiny waves. The theme is, what was Alf scared of this week? Everything this week, is the answer. Flies. The sea. Oh, he is scared of flies. But the Children. sea is really scared. Yeah, just to do that. Here are some codes to help you cheaply subscribe to the TLS if, for some reason, you're not already doing it. So this is, I'll try and not screw this up. If you live in the US or Canada, go to podcast.the-tls.com. If you live anywhere else, including the UK, then go to the-tls.co.uk forward slash pod 19. Pretty straightforward, I think. And you get five issues for just £5 or $5. This week on our show, Thea's favourite, the philosophy issue. It is absolutely amazing, actually, this one. It is good, isn't In it? In particular, it's a really good one. Yeah. That, that sounded sarcastic, but it's not. You it actually isn't. said it to me. I name. can yeah. sometimes be genuine. Yeah. Weird. Uh, it covers matters from immortality to the Enlightenment, from free speech to hate speech. Our resident philosopher, well, I say resident, he lives and teaches in Budapest, but Tim Crane is on hand to guide us through it all like Virgil to our bemused Dante. Bit of an Italian reference for you there, Thea. Very clever. Thank you. Does there need to be a prize for women's comic fiction? Ask the comic Helen Ledera in the paper this week. She'll offer her answer. And northern indie pop star, arts editor, friend of the podcast... And other things beside, Lucy Dallas has been reviewing some fiction. So we're dragging her in now, Lucy, for a chat about that. Yep. And a chat with Helen Lederer about what makes things funny. Apparently, Morecambe and Wise were said once to have stood outside one of their shows to listen to the responses of the audience as they left. And someone said, I suppose they were all right, if you like laughing. Which is pretty good comedy criticism as it goes. There's only one thing harder than writing well about what is funny, and that is writing funny things in the first place. Helen Lederer can do both, of course, and this week has done a short essay in the TLS arguing for the need for the Comedy Women in Print Prize. So is comedy a gendered thing, and should its awards be? They're good questions, and Helen is in the studio to tell us. Helen, hello. Hello, very exciting to well, have written a short essay for you. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's longish. Well, it's, short, it's short by our standards, yeah. long by others, Helen. Yeah, I think it's probably good the answer. answer. Yeah. Um, we'll come to the award shortly, but um, you say, which I think is uh, really interesting, that when people have talked to you 
about great comic novels, the great comedy canon, they often mean comedy novels written by and liked by men. Yes, probably in the main. And I think um, there are more in existence, so it's easier for us to kind of pick those as examples. They're more plentiful. Uh, And I think factually they're probably more plentiful. And then you go back another stage and go, well, is that because they weren't published? And, you know, you can sort of deconstruct the whole thing. I mean, can it possibly be true that um, men are better at writing comedy than women? I would say... I don't think it can be true. But some people do glibly <laughs> assert that. Don't they? I, have, I mean, people do say that, don't they? Do, do they? I'm, I Idiots say I'm not saying it's right. I'm saying it's not Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> but, but that, assertion, that assertion does exist. I've, see, I've seen people say that. Right. Well, I mean, oh, sorry, didn't mm. Christopher Hitchens, was it Christopher Hitchens who famously said women aren't funny? Uh, somebody Sounds did like say that. Maybe they, him and a few other people as well in a group said it for security. They were always in groups, <laughs> weren't they? <laughs> but, um, and he would have read, Christopher Hitchens would have been part of this tradition and you talk about Kingsley Amis yes I always I've never found Kingsley Amis funny but you're expected to read Lucky Jim and be in sort of paroxysms of laughter well but- I remember you see this is the other thing it's quite challenging isn't it because I in in this mini essay um I, I long was, essay as, as, as we're now calling it <laughs> I was trying to remember the books on my parents bookshelf because yeah. I'm older than all of you but you know that um, we did have Kingsley Amos and it is a bit sort of you feel a bit grown up don't you reading your parents yeah. sort of slightly saucy so that is a way Tom to, Sharp is another one Tom Sharp I, I had exactly the same thing my mother's bedside table also obviously the naked ape but we all yeah. looked at, into that the middle <laughs> pages that are yellowing um, but um, yes and actually I remember it just being an adult world that wasn't part of and and actually sniggering and laughing, but probably just because there was kind of very sexual. What's fascinating is you just wouldn't... Nobody writes that kind of content now in that same way. That sort of rompy Yeah, just overt um, observation. So uh, we've just evolved. Our language has evolved. We're more careful. But if you're trying to make people laugh, going back to the original question, I think men and women are as capable as each other but society has to evolve to perceive it as thus and I suppose we're in very exciting times I don't know what you guys think but aren't we because well witty women's in it's the new it's the new beige isn't it if one is allowed to say that <laughs> I mean it's everywhere and I having lost to something the night before last in a group thing so it wasn't entirely my fault at BAFTA <laughs> um and there, you know, there's wonderful Phoebe Waller-Bridge looking amazing, every, every inch amazing. And you go, this is, what's going on? Because there was Miranda a few years before yeah, yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. So we have to have phenomenons but, for it to be visible. But maybe we could be looking at just visibility, just normality, just celebrating witty, ironic female voices. I was also struck by what you said, because you said that when when you were writing stuff earlier, um, there was French and Saunders. Mm -hmm. It's very loud to have, so you couldn't say there's no women, because there was French and (laughs) Saunders, and Ruby Wax, but that was about it, and I feel feel a bit like that, like you're saying now, that, that it's brilliant that there are individual figures like mm. Phoebe Waller-Bridge but I let's not just have one yeah don't I think just because you have yeah, one you can it. take some time off and exactly not have any others exactly right obviously people should shine if they're good so it's not about that and this is the time to shine uh, of course but by maybe and it's slightly artificial to create book prizes and we all know the best prize never wins and we all know there's a process of judging and it's all personality led and all that we know all that but just the fact that there are, well, hopefully there there is another prize for witty, ironic well, female us, voices. That's te- something, isn't it? Tell That's us something. about that. Because you want to create this prize, you have created this prize, Comedy Women in Print. Why, why if the zeitgeist is witty women, mm. if witty women are winning prizes that are for well, both? one or two. <laughs> yeah. What's the argument? Why is it needed? Um, well, I'd, I've been wanting to do this for four years. It's not my normal thing. I mean... I try and be creative to keep myself like not being depressed. Do you know what I mean? That's what I need. Um, so I'm quite depressed at the moment. In the, I use that word casually to be careful about it. But um, I'm trying. I'm not really an administrator. It's not my best stroke. But I have become an administrator, and do. Um, and I just. I think four years ago I had the idea when I got nominated for the PG one. Didn't get it. Obviously, didn't expect to. I've never won anything. But 
It's just... I've never worn anything either. I don't believe that. That's I'm just, sure if you de- delve... It's definitely true. It's def- delve, delve. And, and we were both at the same bookseller <laughs> award ceremony, not winning awards yes. uh, yesterday. And I find it... Do you not find it a bit depressing? Yeah, well, that's the future. Not winning awards is the future. Do you think oh, really? let's make it thus? Well, yeah, we'll stand the test. Is that the, is that the, new, is that the new winning awards? <laughs> yeah, not actually, winning awards. for not you winning awards. Yeah. You say that, and I happened to watch, um, I think, Piers Morgan after the BAFTA. He, oh, that's he where you went wrong. He did... Clever. He co you or he co-opted each other's concept there because he was saying there is a way to lose well kind of take it but then to go on to win it's not about winning I know that it for me I don't win things that's not that's not why I'm here on this earth to win things I'm not a winner but I think I was angry having been a stand-up in the 80s and of that lack of visibility and the very tight hierarchy of stand-up comedy and then slash showbiz television, which is run by agents because of market forces uh, 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 inspiring them to earn more money and control us all. And I just want to do something because I don't know, I don't know how much uh, time I have left anyway. And I just thought, well, it, just do something as opposed to vanity projects, i.e. being in a sitcom. Wouldn't that be nice? So... The reason you're in there's the Bollinger Everyman Woodhouse Prize. It's had 19 years of history. They've only been, until this year, three female winners and only 18 women have been shortlisted. So in a shortlist of six a year, generally there's been a woman and never more than that. Yeah, and the percentage of winners is us. And of course, uh, I you know, I love anyone. They're tr- everyone is trying to do a good thing. It's not, they, and they're not bad people. But it it is... Is it ironic? Is it coincidence? You say zeitgeist. Um, that actually, oh, four of them... Uh, of the shortlisted are women now. That's very unusual. And we ha- lovely Nina has won it. Nina Stibby won uh, it. Very funny book, uh, deservedly so. But it's just that people can't really ignore what's going on right now. But I think that so it, take, it has taken me a very long time to even say comedy women in print exists. I bore myself, you know, talking about it. And in an ideal world, after five years, say, of it, or four years or something, mm. you might say, you know what, we really have genuinely, it's not just gimmickry, it's not just tokenism, it is more than a zeitgeist, it's a zeitgeist that took root. Yeah. I won't need to do this anymore. Well, there's that, uh, which I end the mini-essay on that um, conclusion. I don't know. Uh, uh, but also, once you get the attention and highlight irony and wit and narrative i mean comedy divides us all what we all i mean people are passionate about what they love and what they hate people are not neutral about comedy so i think it's that's going to be difficult again you know i get called quirky that's an interesting word of labeling i don't feel i'm particularly quirky you hate it being called quirky. it's just it's a it's a label um but uh, to, to enable other people to feel they can control what they think i am so what we're talking about is normalizing and highlighting and celebrating really interesting content that makes us laugh and that's hard enough i mean the, what you said Stig, about the there being no need for it in five years that's the dream wouldn't that be brilliant if there didn't have to be any kind of encouragement of any sets yeah. of people that had been overlooked i mean but you know I suspect it will probably have to carry on but somebody else can take it forward because then I quite like to write a book and be creative myself. Because you, you, <laughs> you wrote Losing it in 2015, which was nominated. Yes. Are, you writing, are you writing another one? Well, I'm getting quit, but then I'm writing another one because you can't actually be an administrator and worry about things, the detail, and write. See, Nina, sensibly, has gone on. So we both got nominated at the same time. She's written like a book a year. I'm told you have to write a book a year. Well, I haven't, is but I will hard? after this. Is it hard to write a book here? Um, well, I've never done it. <laughs> <laughs> you have to find out next year. You have, yeah. have to come back and tell us. Yeah, but I don't know. What do, what do you all think? You I, think I there don't is write any... a book a year. You don't write a book a year. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine? Would you have a life? <laughs> um, but it's like writing lines. It's, it's time-consuming. But do you think there is a need for comedy women in print? Both of I you? Think, I think it's a very interesting idea. I think there probably is. With that caveat, I suppose, that you hope that in five years' time or whatever it right. won't be necessary yeah. because there's always that slight thing where you're like, but are we sort of ghettoizing here? Mm-hmm. It's not like in sport where you can say, well, men can't compete against women because the male body is different to the yeah. female runner's body or whatever. And you, it's tangible it's, uh, exactly. up to a point, although that's probably debatable as well. But anyway. But I yeah. think you're, yeah, but I think you're right that there needs to be something to create a focus. 
it's quite challenging though. But then, then you think about the, mm, the women's prize, um, the just, Bailey's Women's Prize, for just fiction, going to for example. How long has that been going? And they've been going for sixteen years, I believe, or longer. And they crack on, mm. and 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 everything is a struggle because you need money for it. And they do crack on, and it, it's less fashionable uh, to talk about isolating women and men in all fields. I mm. absolutely get that. But I think, uh, well, where we're at now, and I would like to encourage um, a higher standard without sounding arrogant of wit as a means of communication from women, because I think that is underestimated. Uh, Wit is a powerful tool. We know that. So I think um, as opposed to sort of compartmentalising, I see it more as a celebration of wit we haven't seen enough of. Chris Rock, when, when Chris Rock presented the famous... It was a year after the all-white Oscars and Chris Rock was presenting the next year and it was still pretty white. He did a whole thing about uh, prejudice and, and he, he, he did a whole riff on the fact that why do we have difference between best actor and best actress? Mm, yes. Because it's not like running. You can Both, both, both people mm. can act. Acting yep. is just acting and there is no mm. genetic or biological reason why acting is any, any different. And so he, he threw up the idea really for comic effect. He wasn't taking it mm. uh, seriously. Because, but he said, why do we have best actor for, and best actress? Why don't we just have... Best actor, uh, but the lesson from best director, where it doesn't happen, where mm. it's not gendered, is bunch of men mm. always in it. Because and if you we're... didn't have yeah. best actress, it, it would always be best actor. Yeah. And yeah. up until about two years ago, it would always be best white actor. That's just the numbers yeah. are. And that's what we're looking at changing. We're uh, yeah. we're looking. At, it's much. It's an infrastructure of visibility. So it has to, like in TV, it has to come from the commissioning editors. No offence to you, because I know you're all brain boxes, but it's still largely Oxbridge white male uh, led, and t- the tendency is to remain with one's own comfort group. You know, so but it's life is changing, so it's just very slow. So we have to celebrate this um, and not worry so much about being PC, because there is um, we've got a long way to go. The, um, there was that, that BBC ruling, wasn't there? And which is actually quite recent for the panel shows. Oh yeah. When they said, "Oh, actually, now you've got to have a woman. You've got to have someone uh, uh, BAME." Operation Diamond, I think it was. Oh, called. that was cool. Yeah. And it wasn't very long ago, and there was actually some panic, and people going, "Oh no, it won't be funny anymore." And yes. guess what? <laughs> but we're yes, not, we're, it's absolutely. fine. <laughs> but what we, we but do it's alarming, though, for some people. I think men, if I may generalise, uh, with one group of society, that I I think when I was being funny on stage at the beginning, um, I think I presented to somebody a bit alarming. So I, I do think, I think it's quite psychological as well. I'm not saying I have the answers, but I think there's an, a lack of comfort or normality with individual women assuming and presenting a self uh, a face that is funny it, it's not normal and equality rising equality seems like a threat because it, it yeah. actually it's just returned it's actually equality but it looks like a threat to certain people you know when when at the tls we have a 50 50 rule of people writing for us it's not completely fixed but when i took over it was about 80 20 male female and last year was 51 49 and it's not that's brilliant but we try and make sure that everyone commissions and if you don't do it because i said well maybe we don't need to be fixed about it Mm. but if you don't say we want a 50 50 paper it doesn't happen that's it and and people just go well i know that person who's done it for 10 years so and but also we reflect the academe so if we're drawing on um writers from uh, the academic world then we're reflecting the fact that there are more male professors who reach tenure or whatever you want to call it than there are women mm. so it just means you have to look harder and look better absolutely and everyone does that at the CLS now I, well I, I'm, I'm impressed I might maybe I could be a runner for you <laughs> there might be not enough equal runners for both genders can we, before we go, talk about celebrating female writers? I wonder whether, because you, you've done some great books here, uh, but we could all say a, a favourite funny novel by a woman. Oh, you see, because I, when I get asked this, the one that is laugh out loud is by a man. Can I say it? doesn't contradict. It's like, no, but did, you, did any of you read um, Starter for Ten by David Nichols? Yeah. That was it, made into a film. It is good. And I'm saying, or I just, I cite that because I know for definite that I laughed out loud. Yeah. 
and Portnoy's complaint as well. They said, well, there's another man. <laughs> oh, damn it. Give us a woman. Give like, us a woman, um, Helen. You Muriel's made about it. Muriel Spark. Oh, right. Muriel Spark. Muriel Spark. Okay. Uh, Sue Townsend. Yeah. Um, yeah. Can, I, can I offer um, Cold Comfort Farm? Yes, Della Gibbons. Good level, can't remember it. See, I, oh, I, I didn't read it until about two years ago, having just, I can't believe I didn't read it. And I just, I just thought it was so Why? wonderfully... Why? What was funny? What, uh, it's... I think it's because at one level it's like a pastiche and it's sort of satirising things which you don't either need to care about. But then at the local level of just the characters and uh, the sentences, are it's so knowing. It's just ah, so clever. You and you just think, God, it was written in the 1930s. And it's the just knowing, this- that's what we want. You see, now you, I like that word. It's helpful. You know, And we're all going to be judging. I'm not judging. I am not a judge. Otherwise, everyone will maybe bribe me, but they probably won't. I'm not a judge. <laughs> um, I, it's embarrassing to meet other writers right now. I have to duck away. I'm not judging. It's not me. Um, but that's a really helpful criteria. Would you agree with that? Knowing. I, it's just that connection with the reader I hate try hard comedy yeah mm. and then you just go oh no this is even worse this w- try hard is worse than than, than no. mediocre yeah in mm. a way yeah. I think that's right any, any more um, on, well I was going to say Stella Gibbons um, Nancy Mitford I love Nancy Mitford and I um, uh, Catelyn Moran Yes, I love Catelyn Moran as that's, well, and I would have said that's a safe one. Yeah, yeah. And in, Sue in a Townsend good way. as well. Sue Townsend is uh, mm. is so good because I, I come from Leicester, and so when I in the uh, when I was a teenager, like young teenager, I read Adrian Mole, and it was freak, oh, yes. it was freakish. It was so freak. funny. <laughs> I wouldn't you know, admit to that. No, it was <laughs> slightly losery Leicester boy who, who liked reading. It's kind of like oh. And that and there's great punchlines in that as well. I only know that because I always have to read things for charity at Christmas, and the nativity section in Adrian Mole is the perfect read. Yeah, so I know it. I know it very well how everyone connects and with affection, but also a little bit of shock. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> uh, Helen Edward, thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This week, the fiction pages of the TLS seem to be filled with bleak, difficult lives. The generally young protagonists are different, elusive, alone even if in a crowd. They're all pretty much friendless. One character puts her finger on something that could go for all of them when she articulates her longing for an animal companion, a pet that would give you a break from human company. Or, as George Eliot put it, animals are such agreeable friends they ask no questions, they pass no criticisms. Beasts Little and Large from Pigs to Giraffes stalk through a review by Lucy Dallas, which takes in three novels, To Leave with the Reindeer by Olivia Rosenthal, translated by Sophie Lewis, Animalia by Jean-Baptiste Delamo, translated by Frank Wynne, and Edgardo Franzosini's The Animal Gazer, translated by Michael F. Moore. But do the animals here offer anything beyond an obedient metaphor? 
Lucy Dallas joins us in the studio to share her thoughts. Hello, Lucy. Why did they give you these books? Why you? <laughs> they? Yeah. In the fiction. Yeah. Yeah. Who was it? You didn't take it. Oh, yeah. it was Toby. Yeah, but, Toby Lichty. But why did Toby think, oh, here's three animal-based... <laughs> Lucy loves animals. Uh, no, I'll tell you why. I think because <laughs> we did an event with the TLS talking about animals and things a bit like that a while ago, and I wasn't chairing it, but I was involved in setting it up with Max Porter. Yeah. Before he was famous. Before George Berridge. <laughs> Before George Berridge championed him. And with uh, Mark Rowlands, the philosopher who had the, the wolf. The philosopher, I can't even say it. The philosopher wolf. Exactly. Or the wolf yeah. philosopher. He, he lived like a wolf, didn't he? He sort of lived with a wolf, yes, right. and a bit like a wolf. I live yeah. with a wolf now. Well, there you go. Well, you see, that's, that's I knew what the we're all after. Al- I knew the spectre of Alf was looming. <laughs> I, nearly, I nearly actually interrupted when you were saying to mention Alf, and then I thought, I won't. <laughs> Um, first off, Lucy, these books, mm-hmm. the reading, it all sounds a bit grim. Yes. Did you find yourself longing for the touch of your guinea pigs? <laughs> That's not how I would put it. No, I was going to say long, longing for a bit of time with Alf. That <laughs> would time. just be just wonderful. Um, Why, are they so grim? Why are they so grim, these books? Because everyone's having a bad time. Yeah. Um, and actually... This is great literary criticism so far. <laughs> Okay. Well, all right then. They're grim because there's no respite because she because they're looking for, as Thea says, they're 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 talking about respite. So the animals are being used as respite, but they're being used in all sorts of ways. They're being used to make money and for food and to Mm. make people feel better. um, And um, so they're being used by everybody apart from the character in the last book, the animal gazer. And he is, uh, as I say in the piece, the only person who is interested in animals as themselves. He wants to, he's a sculptor and he sculpts them and he observes them and he tries to sort of make himself uh, invisible, you know, not in the room so that he can observe them. He goes, he goes to the zoo and, and watches them um, because he wants to observe them as themselves, how they move, what they do. But otherwise it's instrumental. And so it's a bit grim. Basically. So they're sort of used to tell us something about the protagonists. Is it? Is it? Yes. Is it? Is it normally something along the lines of the protagonists are, are truer, purer because they can connect with the animal world? Or? Not really, actually. The the first one to leave with a reindeer. The protagonist is she's she's. We kind of follow her. She's called you, all the way through. Confusing. Which is well, it's a bit unsettling. It's it's good because it's always kind of it's always you, the reader, as well. So she says, you feel like this, you know, you feel trapped, da da da, da. And so, so it's quite an effective thing. Um, and interest, I was checking, actually, just to show how much, how much extra work <laughs> I do for the podcast. Um, that she says, vous, not tu. I would, I, would, right. I would have said, if you'd asked me cold, I would have said, oh, she must have said tu, because she starts out by talking about a little girl. But it's vous, because there's a sort of distance throughout um, and she's got a kind of wildness in her a sort of longing she wants to break out but it's not clear why or how or kind of what for and then that's and these passages directed at her and about her life are um, intercut with passages very kind of factual things almost like factual accounts from people who work in a slaughterhouse or scientists who um, do experiments on animals or people who are handlers in a zoo or, or people who are trying to reintroduce a community of wolves I think back sort of next to a human community So is this about the ethics of our animal relationships? Well not obviously but they're put next to it yeah. so so her longing for wildness is obviously I mean she's like a bit like the beasts because the feeling the idea is that she's handled and managed and tame domesticated and there are some benefits to that but then the idea is that ultimately she has to break out but I, d- I have to say I didn't buy it completely when she's little it's uh, it's uh, it's very powerful because you know and children can't always articulate yeah. things and and um, and and they're they're encouraged to sort of identify with animals and 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 feel like them and there quite often is quite a kinship but then later on she doesn't so she's rebelling against everything but to the extent that she then gets married you don't have any kind of insight into her inner life she's still trapped and 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 she has to sort of get out of the marriage. It's not clear why she's trapped. She's not, she's not like a wolf, you know. She's not like a, a pig in the slaughterhouse. Or why she got married. No, that's not clear at all. 
Um, <laughs> so so what, are we, what are we meant to read the factual bits as? Well, that's precisely the question. So early on, they're quite strong. But by the end of it, I thought, well, actually, you can't. You can't. She's not actually like a, a, a rat that's being um, experimented yeah. on. And, and I suppose she's probably not supposed to be because she liberates herself. She brings about her own liberation. But as I say in the piece, I don't know quite what we're meant to do with that. Am I, are we then supposed to think that all the rats and the wolves should liberate themselves? I don't think we are supposed to think that. Are we supposed to think that we need to recalibrate our relationships with animals because we live? that's the kind of zeitgeist of... You know, sort of Maybe, though this this was written a while ago. It came out in, in French, it came out in 2010, I think. Oh, really? So it's yeah. not so the, sort of the vegan zeitgeist isn't really... No, I don't think it is. And also she's she's very kind of elusive and she she always kind of looks at things sideways, Olivia Rosenthal. So it's it's she, she wouldn't come out and say, we're not treating them very well, though clearly clearly that's also in there. So postmodernism, Lucy, I say with a suspicious voice. It doesn't really feel particularly post modernist because the the vu is is mostly addressed to this central um you know this this central protagonist and as i say the big, the 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 early bits of it are i found very powerful i just found that it didn't quite cash out um towards the end and there's quite a lot of it's kind of slightly her mother's fault really we're supposed to think but it's not really clear why yeah. Um, this is what happens in the second one as well. Um, well, tell us about the second one. Yeah, yeah. Parents in general seem to not. Ha, come well, out of hmm. this very mothers, well. actually. Mothers, especially. And I don't want to generalise too much, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> These are anti mother books. Uh, it's not that they're anti mother, but the mother comes out um, pretty badly in, in, in the second one as well, which is. Animalia. Um, Animalia, yeah. So it's a bit more conventional in than it's like a historical novel. So it starts with a very poor family. Um, Pig farmers. Yes. Well, at the beginning, they're not even pig farmers. They're just sort of scratching out. They've got like one. They dream pig. of being pig farmers. <laughs> yeah, that would be luxury. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it follows this little girl uh, growing up in this horrible place, and her mum is absolutely horrible. Her mum hasn't got a name. Her mum's called the Genetrix. Um, and her dad's quite nice, but totally silent. And, and the only respite that she gets, a little girl, is sometimes sitting with her dad or with the dog or with the pigs. So there are little moments of peace that she gets. But then the dad dies and then her cousin comes and he's quite nice, but it's the First World War and things that were bad get much worse. And, and there's a lot of very, very physical... So there's a, there's a, And there's a description of them when they, had, when they killed a pig, which in some ways is a, you know, brings lots of food and celebration and all of that, but it's described in minute, relentless, disgusting detail. I mean, it's supposed to be, and we're supposed to feel... I think, kind of revulsion at it. Well, in general, the language in this book in particular sounds like a real a real thing. The language is a big part of it. Yeah, it is. It's very rich and knotty and quite claustrophobic, which is what the, what the book is like, I think, what the, what the atmosphere of the place is supposed to be like. Um, and then it moves, it kind of jumps forward um, to, to, to about uh, 60, 70 years later, and then they have a pig farm by then. So you'd have thought they might have cheered up a little bit because they've got a bit more money. And Lovely. Things. No, 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 it's awful. It's all re- <laughs> it's intensive pig farming. And again, so, so there's a lot of description of that, and it makes them all really unhappy. And is this a metaphor? Are, this, is there, are these pigs metaphors, or are they just I think there's a, there's a bit of... They're horrible to the pigs. They can't begin to... So they, when you go into the, into the, the house where the pigs are, it's, it's all, they're always screaming... And the place is full of sort of mm. filth and, you oh, know, God. sickness. Though, though, though we're not supposed... They are, it's run along proper lines. It's inspected by whoever it's inspected by, but it's intensive. And they're all horrible to the pigs. They can't sort of treat the pigs uh, like fellow beings because if they did, they would have to admit what they're doing to them. Do you see what I mean? They can't ima- allow themselves to think that the pigs might feel pain or fear. And, and the dad that we've moved on to, the dad and the two sons, are kind of bound by this horrible... Bond of, Unspoken. of sort of awfulness that they have to do. This is just what we have to do, uh, and then it all it all goes really badly. Apart from from one of the pigs, thank God. Um, shall we just briefly talk about Edgardo Franzosini's book? He is one of the Bugatti brothers, but yes. not the Bugatti brother that we would probably know of. The, the yes, he's not the motor car Bugatti. Okay, he's called Rembrandt, and that's that's a bit of a clue. He becomes an artist. <laughs> he's a sculptor. Uh, and he's he's real. In fact, we were looking at the, some of the figures that Franzosini's written about, and he seems to find these kind of unusual, sort of set apart figures, and and write. I mean, they're not. It's not a biography. It's sort of a novel. Um, it reminded me of um, 
Things by Jean Echenoz. I never know whether you pronounce the Z. I think you do. He's written these beautiful books about Ravel and uh, Tesla and um, oh, yeah. Zatopek, which are kind of novels and kind of not. It reminded me of that a bit. You liked it? Uh, yes, because he's a very odd figure. So this is the guy who goes to the zoo all the time and mm. sculpts the animals. And he's a bit of a dandy. That's his other kind of thing. He doesn't have that many personal relationships. But then when the war comes... There's this kind of awful scene where they have to, they or they think they have to slaughter all the animals in the zoo, because they think a bomb might land on it and they'll get out, or they won't be able to look after them. So that's what he lives for, really. And they just kind of line them all up them. and Gosh. shoot them. And Do you it, know that happened in the, in the yeah, beginning. Yes, of, that's yeah. amazing. Like, the yeah. Second World War, half the population of the dogs in the country were killed because people thought they couldn't support them during the war. One of the most acts of pet slaughter in history, and it happened yes. in Britain. Yeah. It's crazy, that isn't it? Yes, it is. And 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 this and for and for this particular person, I mean, the suggestion is that this is. I mean, he he carried on for a bit after that, but then he has a very sad end because, and he, as I say, is the only person who looks at animals in themselves, is interested in animals in themselves, rather than how we can use them, basically. Shall we have one quick fire yes. round just to end it? Yeah. Um, and I'm going to lower the tone Do so it. low now. Yep. Uh, favourite book with an animal protagonist or anim- animal protagonists? That's difficult, though. There's lots, aren't there? Can I offer mine? Go. I like All the Pretty Horses by Cormac McCarthy. Oh, yeah. Oh, I, that's a good one. Because I like uh, the man and his horse just wandering around those beautiful um, parts of uh, the South. And, uh, yeah, he's not, he's not the protagonist, but, like, it's the title and the animals in it are magnificent and it makes you want to go off and, and be alone in, in the wild. Mm. Lucy? But this is not going to sound impressive, and I did check this, and I've forgotten it now. There's a, a brilliant book called The Elephant Keeper. There's also a great science fiction set of things where elephants in the future have b- become... I know, Sig's making a face that you can't hear on radio because I said science fiction. <laughs> some very good science fiction by <laughs> Alistair Reynolds with some excellent elephants. There's another one called The Elephant Keeper that I reviewed for the Times Literary Supplement, but I can't remember the name of the person who wrote it. But if you look on the we'll website, I'm sure you'll find it. Okay, I'm going to go with Fox 8 by George Saunders. Has anyone read that? No. no. Uh, it's a fox uh, sort of nestles outside the window of, of, a, of a home and learns how to speak human. And then he has all of these adventures trying to stop uh, a supermarket being built. That's it. No more. Lucy, stop, stop mentioning animals. I've got one. No, no. Okay. Go on, what is it? The Blue Fox by Sjern. It's really good. Good note to end it on, I think. Yeah. How tempted by immortality are you? I have to say, not very. The idea of bearing the burden of infinite existence does not appeal to me at all. But what if immortality became a scientific reality available not to us, but the next generation? Regina Rini this week asks, what would it mean if, in our looming senescence, we were increasingly forced to share social space with young people whose anticipated allotment of time massively dwarfs our own? She wishes to explore how would we, facing death, handle the prospect of witnessing those who will enjoy the option of living healthily for a very long time, possibly for as long as one could want, but no longer. Rini believes that the advent of biological immortality actually worsens the lives of those who fall closest in never reaching it. It's essentially because we would feel the frustration of a missed opportunity rather than the non-fulfilment of an impossible dream. To Rini, the chasm between the dying and the ever-living will be the greatest inequality experienced in all human history. Do we agree? Does that matter? Is it a classic philosophical problem that doesn't have any real-world manifestations? We'll get to that. Elsewhere in the paper, we discuss Hobbes and the Enlightenment, universities and free speech, and hate speech. Thankfully, philosophy don Tim Crane is on the line to help us through it all. Tim, hello. Hello, Stig. Hello, Thea. Um, Why is immortality interesting to a philosopher, uh, do you think? Um, Well, I I think one obvious reason is that it's, it's... it links uh, the question of life and the meaning of life with with the um, question of death and what death means to us. And immortality, of course, is life without death. And um, for many philosophers, the meaning of our own being is tied up with our sense of death. Uh, so what, what immortality could mean for us, whether it could be something desirable, is something that many of them have discussed. Um, I mean, I suppose one way to think of it, even if, even if you thought that immortality itself was not something desirable 
for, for various reasons. Um, it may well nonetheless be that if you're in a state of good health and you're asked if you want to live one more day, you'll always say yes. Okay, but the idea of actually having a non-time-capped existence doesn't appeal to me. My instinct is to think, I don't want to live forever. I mean, it sounds awful. It just sounds like, you know... Yeah. I mean, some of the pleasures in life are there because it's finite, perhaps. Yes, exactly. Are you yeah. also thinking of it not as biological immortality? Because that's different to immortality in which, you know, you, you jump from a building wanting to end it and you don't, you bounce back and you live on forever. Biological immortality still gives you the out, still gives you the option to end it. Well, you can just kill yourself. Yeah, yes. exactly. Yes, and Does that's, that that's, the, that's the phenomenon that, um, or the possible phenomenon, if it is possible, that uh, Regina Rini's in investigating in her, in her piece. Um, so it's not... The terrible immortality of Groundhog Day, or um, the sort of thing that um, the philosopher Bernard Williams used to talk about when you know he said the problem with immortality was everything would just be so incredibly boring. Yeah. So, but she's not talking about immortality like that. She's talking about something something close to what looks like a possibility, which is you know living living much much longer, being able to end your life, but nonetheless, advances in medical sciences have been able to prolong it. Indefinitely. But my criticism remains, is it not, that if, if I could live for 200 years, life would still be potentially, in Williams's terms, boring. It would still be a burden that is, that is carried for too long, you know, like a bag that you can't ever put down. That feels yeah. still like not... You know, I'm not sure if someone said to me, if the only out of life was effectively suicide, is what we're saying... Yeah. That doesn't yeah. instinctively. My heart doesn't flutter and think, "Oh God, I would really like to be part of that group of people who have that." My heart thinks, "Good luck to them." It's a kind of option I don't want to have any part of. So I wouldn't feel Regina's piece seems to be predicated on this idea that we'd feel this terrible jealousy of this, yeah. um, this these group of people who are going to live forever, and as we get older and about to die, they have this beautiful Elysian world before them. Whereas I'm not sure I'd feel. Do you think you'd feel that, Thea? I don't know. I don't know. It's that thing of if everybody else was doing it, would you feel left out if yes. if everyone else were going to go on and, you know, you have always got that out of, of ending your life when you don't want to go on anymore, then that does sort of change it, perhaps. I think it does. I think it may be... I think her argument doesn't, doesn't presuppose that this would be desirable for everybody anyway. I think it's uh, it's it's consistent with the existence of you know miserable people like Stig who just want to get out as quickly as possible. But uh, it's rather that if that possibility were there, the the significance of it being denied to you when you know that other people will will have it is is very poignant. And that's she poses the question of death um, within that framework. And that the possibility as well, because she she points out that we don't know at what stage that decision would occur whether it would be when uh in in a uh when the the child has not yet been born whether it would be something that would be done uh, in utero to change yes. the the child to then make it one that can can live forever and then that brings in all sorts of ethical questions about the parents would have to be the ones to make that decision about their yes. unborn baby right. and is that a gift you'd give them and is that yeah Exactly, and so then that creates inequalities in the playground. And when a teenager says, I never asked to be born, (laughs) you then escalate that. I never asked to be made immortal. (laughs) The only other area I thought I could possibly get on board with this was that I know that I will not see probably my great grandkids get married. Just because the normal, with with luck, I will see grandchildren and with super luck, maybe I see my grandchildren get married just. That's kind of the normal sweep of human life. But I'll never see my great grandkids get married. So is it the the idea that you kind of move from landmark to landmark to landmark and at some point we all know we're not going to get there? But if you yeah. could get there, would you want to constantly keep surviving to see the next bit, to see my grandkids get married and them have kids uh, and them go to school for the first time and then go to secondary school for the first time and be at all the landmarks that you don't even think about because it's impossible at the moment? Does that that's make great, sense? That's a great way of putting it. I think that's a great question. Because um, it seems arbitrary to say, I'd like to see my grandchildren get married that would be great i don't mind about the next generation but if you actually did live long enough to see your grandchildren supposing you were in good health and they were in good health and they were happy then 
yeah, the desirability of seeing your great-grandchildren get married would, would come to the surface too. And I who, think this is the sort of thing she's pointing towards. Who is good on death um, in the great philosophical canon? Because there's a, there's a stoical position that we've just got to kind of put up with life yeah. and, you know, just get through it. And that's kind of yeah. a view of death, isn't it? That death is presumably a bit of a release even. Yes, I think to, to come to terms with the inevitability of death is a stoic at, attitude, which I think actually is the most is the most realistic. Um, there's the also the Epicurean view, which um, she mentions, I think, in her essay. Um, you know that there's nothing to fear because it won't happen. Nothing bad will happen to you. It'll just be the absence of anything happening to you, and there's nothing to fear about that. And I've I think, never really um, understood that one because Philip Larkin, Philip Larkin called that fatuous or somewhere. Somewhere, I think. I, I kind I, of agree with that. What's wrong with that? Well, I mean, I understand that as soon as death arrives, you're you're no longer living, so you won't experience death. But there are yeah. so many tentacles of death that reach into your life that you can almost be experiencing death as it approaches that's right so the philosopher i think you know actually had so many interesting things to say about death and he formulated his whole philosophy around it was was heidegger who said that our what was distinctive of our being our human being was that we lived in the in the awareness of death our being was being towards death um and, um, which is which is my yeah, point. So if you if you become yeah. immortal, then actually you lose a sense of meaning because death is the thing that invests all of our living activities with meaning. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That was that was Bernard Williams' point in his in his fa- famous essay of his called the Macropolis case. Yeah, he made that point. And do you buy yeah. that? Yes, I do. Yeah, I do. So I think there's a sort of paradox. If Regina Rini's ar- argument is any good, there's a paradox in it, which is she's describing something that is desirable. But in a, that in a certain way doesn't make sense. It robs our life of what's significant, which is our, our consciousness of our own death and, and the inevitability of that. And then I suppose this is not the place to get into this, but then you throw a sort of Christian or religious philosophy into the mix, which then has concepts of immortality being after death. Yes. Which then, you know, in yes. some senses makes sense of existing because ultimately... In many ways, religion is just wish fulfillment for for primitive people originally, and some would argue continually. Mm. Uh, so it's an obvious answer to that point, isn't it? To say that, that there is death, but we have to create something after it to, to to keep that sense of meaning. Yeah, I think whatever whatever that is supposed to be, whatever they think it is, it cannot just be like living forever like we do now, um, because then I think that is that that isn't a desirable or meaningful condition. I find that the kind of the social and cultural openings uh, of this piece so fascinating in terms of if we are or if the generation after us is the last generation to to die normally and to not have this eternal life is it likely that those people would then be sort of exhibited or studied in some way, like, you know, in a Victorian-style yes. freak yes. show? Well, the, the, the last mortals. Yeah, would. the last mortals, yes. and they would yeah. be studied yeah. as they as they degenerated, and <laughs> and just, it's yeah. it's it's really sick, yeah, sick and imagine, scary future. You various dystopian movies made on the basis of it. Yeah. Exactly. Also, it does animate a, a general distinction, which is, do the old and the young have anything to say to each other anyway? I mean, we had a yeah. big piece... A month ago yeah, by Carol Tavaris, which was about all, you know, as we're all living a long life, should we be creating whole communities just for old people? You know, yeah. I was talking to someone and, and they said, what a good idea that people sell their houses, which are worth a lot of money, that the, the money then goes back into the market, the houses become available, and you create whole, not grim nursing homes, but whole communities for people who might like each other and might have things in common. <laughs> you, you end up sort of separating the old and the young, which is a kind of aspects of what regina is talking about yeah that's interesting yeah. there's a rather grim novel on the fiction pages this week which centers on an, on an island in scotland somewhere where only old people live oh, God. Uh-huh. it sounds uh-huh. very bleak maybe not yeah an island in scotland populated only by old people how could that Look, possibly I'm, be i'm bleak? a lot older than you two I yeah know, so I'm, you know i'm beginning to get worried here. tim we're going to send you there we're going to send you there and see what happens um there's lots of philosophy, obviously, in this paper. There's a, just quickly, this is not. This has come, I think, from other sources than you. But we have an account of what happens when Foucault, and this is true. It sounds like I'm making it up. In 1975, he goes off to the American desert. He takes lots of LSD, smokes some weed, and has a think, and then tries to discover revolutionary consciousness. And he ends up talking about sex and his sister. Yes, uh, it was very strange. Uh, very strange. It's good. It was a good piece. It's very readable. I didn't know about this. It's Eric Bolton's Foucault. written the piece, and yeah. it's true, isn't it? This happened to Foucault. It is a thing that happened. But 
Um, I guess the question that comes from it, Tim, from your point of view, is where is Foucault in... Because I think Bolson refers to him as one of the great 20th century philosophers and it leads yeah. him to writing about sexuality. Um, where is he in your... Because he's one of those people that's oft quoted, I feel, that possibly by people who haven't read him very much. Yeah. I, I th- he's Foucault's probably one of the most... Definitely the one, one of the most influential philosophers of the century. And I think he really... His thinking uh, affected disciplines outside academic philosophy more than more than almost any any thinker i think in the uh, the second half of the 20th century in the post-war period it's immensely influential um in in thinking about how the relationships between power and knowledge and how political phenomena underpin our claims to knowledge and the power that people have over us is is um, manifested in this in various different ways so in his studies of prisons and punishment um, and sexuality these themes come through but he's he's not really widely um, studied in the mainstream anglo-american tradition that I the sort of tradition I belong to and what most most British and American universities teach he's not he's not really very widely studied there so there's a big divide in, in within universities so why why do you think he's not been sort of carried over? That's a great question. It's partly because he, he, I think he wants, there's still a tendency in, in mainstream philosophy to think that we're investigating in a certain sense immortal, immortal eternal truths, you know, the, uh, the underlying facts about value and meaning and substance and reality and these things. This is still an ambition of, of mainstream Anglo-American philosophy, whereas Foucault, I think, is one of those thinkers who stresses the radical contingency of everything you know how things came about because of particular developments in human history and uh, he's more in the real world really in a way yeah although he has that you know he, he's a french philosopher so we have to <laughs> add that to the mix <laughs> <laughs> he has the, that element of the french philosopher too but well he's a, brilliant, a brilliant thinker but also he's very dominated by the marxist background that many of them have and, um, and many of the french have um, well, and yeah. actually, we have to move quickly through this, but there is a sense that what you're talking about, Foucault and, and power and the relationship between philosophy, politics and power, is true of Hobbes. Yes, um, definitely. Uh, yeah. Uh, Hobbes, yeah. Hobbes uh, was a great, the great political philosopher of power. I mean, he, he saw that that was, that was the central question of, of politics, which is who has the power, why do they have it, and how can they justify it, and how can they pe- keep people... Uh, under their power, um, which connects to another was, yeah. uh, connects to another piece, Tim. As we romp through this, which is about how the powerful yeah. in universities control what people say or don't say. Robert Markson. Yeah. Now, this is one of the great verities of the age. So we should pause to reflect this: that universities are filled with snowflakes, constantly being <sighs> triggered left, right, and centre, and free yeah. speech as free speech is no longer possible. Um, for those because of that those circumstances, you work in a, in a university. Um, yeah. Do you recognise that sense of the world? To a certain extent, to a certain extent, it's happening. It's a fashion. There's a fashion uh, among among students, um, and for certain ideas, and for you know, for people thinking the right thoughts, and people who don't think the right thoughts shouldn't be heard or shouldn't be given a platform. There is those ideas have come back. They were around in the 1980s. I'm old enough to remember the 1970s and 1980s. Those ideas were around then too they've taken on a slightly new dimension here and today but but yeah there is there there is a kind of illiberal element in among um university students um at the moment which is somewhat worrying um the other thing that's worrying though i think is the rather craven attitude of the authorities who are much more worried about risk management or management of their reputational risk rather than and what the media is going to say about them than than they are about basic points about academic freedom uh, which is something that comes out in in, in robert simpson's article and presumably this is this links into the the, the marketization of universities as they become run more and more like businesses administrators become involved and and sort of try to steer the experience to keep students happy and protected and all of that sort of thing well, there is that thing about keeping students happy and there is the thing but there's also there are other things i mean cambridge recently for example and cambridge is is a university that's run less like a like a business or a corporation. I mean, it doesn't really have a CEO in the same sense that some some universities do. Um, it, it, Cambridge recently, you know, rescinded this offer to um, Jordan Peterson to to come and be a visiting lecturer or something. 
in the divinity faculty um, on the grounds that his, his views were not representative of the student body, which is the most extraordinary thing to say that you should, you know, that that the only people who should teach at the university or be invited to speak at the university are views, people who have views that are representative of the student body. I mean, so presumably, I, presumably you could make so an argument... There's something that, wrong with the management there. Presumably you could make an argument that he shouldn't be invited because he's not sufficiently expert as a, to, to, to justify that position. That seems That's a different argument, though, isn't it? No, he's a, he's a lightweight weirdo, and he shouldn't have been invited. I don't think he's got his... I wish they'd just said that <laughs> instead. <laughs> but, but the thing was that the university had already... A body within the university had already invited him. I mean, the divinity faculty it was, so, you know. <laughs> they, they invited him. And, uh, and the idea then that the central university should say, no, you can't invite this person because the students are going crazy about it. Because he's so essentially too... Because be the other thing that comes out, and I think Robert Simpson's piece alludes to this, that he's because he's essentially too right-wing is the argument. And everyone accepts there should be rules about what people say because free speech can never be truly absolute because you want to you could, some yeah. things can't be said but if that's yeah. misused to say everything in the cozy center left is lovely but if someone espouses a right-wing position they shouldn't do that's yeah. I mean, and so a lot of right-wing fanatics will say that's what's happening everywhere there's kind of scare stories about yeah. that is there an element of truth but not the full truth of that do you think I think there's an element of truth in that. I think it would be, it's really, it would be really strange if, you know, if somehow, the, you know, the natural tendency of knowledge is to move in a particular political direction. Um, and that, so that people who, are, who have right-wing views are simply not qualified to teach in universities for some reason. I mean, I think that was really, that, that's, that's not an acceptable view. Um, but that doesn't mean that any old what um, Simpson calls any old big name troll should get invited to speak at a university. You know, so um, it's just it's just that there are different perspectives, there are different views, there are conservative thinkers that deserve respect and, and interest and start studying this, and this needs to be acknowledged. And I think Simpson actually um, uh, he's a little bit cheeky at the end because this ex the example he takes is the example of climate change, which is a denying climate change is a scientifically disreputable view and shouldn't be considered by universities. Uh, but that's the only example he has of an actual conservative view. And he says, well, you know, universities are right not to have climate change deniers um, coming to speak. But that, so a conservative might say that's, that's, an that's anti-science, as you say, it's not conservative. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, so I think, you know, we need, there ought to be more variety of views and students ought to listen to more different political views and they ought to try and understand them. Um, I think we could probably... So although I don't think there's any big crisis here, I, I do think that a lot of the points made in this book that's under review here seem to me very, um, very worth taking seriously. And they go for students as much as they do for all of us, I suppose, in, in terms yeah. of a, a varied diet uh, as readers. So exactly. we're all getting off to listen to Roger Scruton now. To yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, Tim Green, thank you very much indeed. Thanks, thanks a lot. Thank, thank you. you bye. Uh, I'm not going to open the Roger Scruton kind of worms. <laughs> I, I was toying with it for the last five minutes. You, I, thought, I think you just have. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I do find interesting on climate change. If you were to draw a Venn diagram of people who don't think Brexit will turn out badly, <laughs> and people who think climate change isn't as bad as people say it is, it would just be a circle. <laughs> it wouldn't be a Venn diagram a at full all. Eclipse. I'm very struck by that. And, and and actually intellectually, what is the reason for that? Other than the fact that they're naturally suspicious, they're kind of anti-received liberal wisdom. They're, 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 they're driven by conspiracy and and and. I don't know, but it's fascinating to me that there, uh, at one level there should, there should be, there shouldn't, because if you were to name the five most prominent Brexiteers, they would probably be the five most prominent anti-climate change people. Mm. and that's Or, even worse possibly, they might be people who accept that there is climate change but think that we shouldn't have to do anything about it. Yeah, or, and I'm interested why, or they accept there's a bit of it... But it's not as bad as people just, are saying. Just a bit of climate, and you kind of change. want to say to them, okay, but Calm say down, you're dear. say you're right. There's a kind of Pascal's wager thing. Say it's bad, but not that bad. What's the harm in acting to stop it? Like the the logical continuation of their position is so weird. I think, but. And if they want to talk about it, good luck to them, free speech and all that. <laughs> yeah. We just won't have them on the podcast. We'll de-platform. <laughs> the de-platforming starts now, Theo. <laughs> That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Helen Lederer, Lucy Dallas and Tim Crane. Do get a copy of the TLS for all things philosophical and much more. Next week, it's the bicentennial of the birth of Queen Victoria. We'll ask, among other things, what would have happened if she had been born a boy? Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye. 
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.